0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. The brain and the nervous system are spread throughout your body and they're doing a lot of complicated things. So when you look at the brain and the earliest brains as they developed in arthropods in the Cambrian period, how do they evolve and change over time and how do they compare to what we see today in modern insects and arthropods? plus how does the brain process all kinds of signals like touch where is it done is it done only in the brain or does the rest of the body contribute your brain is connected to the nervous system and how it's connected in humans is obviously through the central nervous system down the spinal cord and we'll speak a little bit more about that later but in other creatures it can be a little bit more interesting especially when you consider arthropods things invertebrates with hard exoskeletons things like Crabs, worms, spiders, insects, you name it, those kind of creatures. And what's fascinating about arthropods is, well, they're a huge variety, most species-rich animal kingdom in the planet. And this is a pretty amazing thing. And it was more incredible, especially in early in Earth's history. If you look at the Cambrian period in Earth's history, between 540 million and 500 million years ago, these arthropods were pretty much the main type of creature. And there are a huge amount of diversity exploding out in that period of time. Now, there would have been all kinds of strange creatures evolving in the sea. Creatures like the Lopopodians, which would move around on the sea floor using multiple pairs of soft, stubby legs that didn't really have any joints. Today, you would see their descendants, the arthropods, which have a real jointed foot, And actually in the closest living relative for these lopodians are the actual velvet worms that live around Australia, New Zealand and South America. Now, a particular one of these lopodian fossils has been discovered and analyzed in great detail. And this research has, well, turned on its head a big argument about the development, specifically of what goes on inside your head. That is the brain and the nervous system. Because in arthropods, they have obviously a pretty strong nervous system that runs along the whole body, this kind of trunk line system for them. And they also have their nervous system in their brain, neural structures there. Now, what the researchers were looking at in this particular fossil, which actually in and of itself is relatively old, from 1984, but it has been analyzed to new depths. And what they found inside when they took another look at it was pretty astonishing. It was actually a completely preserved nervous system and brain and if you think about how soft and fragile a brain is well it's pretty amazing that it's managed to survive being fossilized for over 500 billion years so this particular fossil was analyzed by researchers from university of arizona including nicholas Straussfield, a regent professor along with other researchers and authors on this paper, including Zhang Jiang Ho, Marcel Sire, and Frank Hirth, published in the journal Science. Now, what these researchers were analysing in this particularly amazing fossil is exactly how it managed to preserve its brain and what that teaches us about the evolution of brains and nervous systems in creatures like arthropods and all other life that came after that, of course, as well. Now, this particular worm-like fossil is only less than 1.5 centimeters long. And what was in it this small and incredibly tiny fossil was obviously a really well-preserved information about the formation of its nervous system and brain. Now thinking about arthropod fossils, when researchers were first going through these in the 1880s, you can make a couple of assumptions about the development and evolution of creatures' features. You can see that they have the clearly segmented trunks starting to appear in early arthropods. And then the researchers just assume that you basically keep going until one of those segments, off, branches often becomes the head. And this is an, the idea where basically segmented body sections naturally become the head. If you've ever drawn an ant or a bee, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here, a series of circles which you join together to make those different regions. And that seems like a logical way to see how evolution would have got there. But in this particular fossil, what they can see is that the head, the early head, wasn't segmented at all, and neither was its brain, which is really amazing because it suggests that the brain and the trunk nervous system weren't some kind of, weren't some kind of combined evolution or segmented process one than the other, but rather happened separately, evolved separately. This particular fossil, this karyodictin, was part of the Chanxiang fauna. It's this really famous deposit of fossils in the Yunnan province, which was discovered by shangkyung Hao. Now, in this, you can see all kinds of different soft, delicate bodies of these lopodians that have been really well preserved. Now, the thing is, these karyodictinins are really small, and every other fossil in there too is also incredibly small too. So nothing's really been analysed in detail about obviously what the features were, just as it was a pretty amazing fossil region, and so then diving into tiny 1.5 centimeter log things to look for signs of brains and nervous systems it wasn't really thought of because well there was bigger things and more important things to look at. Now once the researchers did start looking at this, they found that these turns have a series of triangular or saddle-shaped structures that make the barriers between each of the segments in the body of the arthropod. They also serve as the attachment points for the legs on this arthropod. Now, if you look back even further in other fossils of the came- from pre cambrian areas, you can see that, okay, well, these features in this species exist, these segmented regions in the body where legs can attach. That means that armoured Lapodians like this are probably some of the earliest type of arthropods that have been found, which would predate even something like a trilobite, probably the most famous arthropod that you could think of that in a fossil record type idea, this, this wedge-shaped bottom trawling creature that you can probably picture in your mind, which is only around 250 million years ago that they went extinct. So this would predate that by a long way. So now that the researchers had found the brain and the traces of it and the nervous system in the different regions of this tiny, tiny fossil, they started then to compare it to other living arthropods, including spiders and centipedes. Doing this study, a comparative study, And then looking at the gene expression patterns in the living descendants, they could get an idea about the blueprint of the brain organization and how that had been maintained or changed from the Cambrian period all the way up to today. And by looking at the gene expression compared to the living species, they found that they all had a common signature of brains and and how they were formed. In the karyodictin, there are three brain domains, and each of these is associated with characteristics of a pair of head appendages. And then there's one with three of the other parts of the interior digestive system. So realize that each of the brain domains have features, and these features also correspond to a combination of genes that relate to some region on the body, which makes sense. Genes help program the brain, which helps then control the different aspects of the body. And this means that there must have been, as a layout there, a common genetic plane for making the idea of a brain itself present, at least in these arthropods. And now we can see that common present today. Now, maybe if you looked beyond arthropods and to their immediate relatives, you could see how these nervous systems compare. In this common template of a brain for arthropods, was that similar to what was happening around them in other species at the time? Is it similar today to what happens to other species around them right now? And this is really amazing to think about, because it shows how some of our early evolved creatures on the Earth actually managed to evolve some complex forms like nervous systems and brains particularly given that arthropods are part of one of the most diverse group of organisms on our planet, and they were emerging and taking over the Earth in huge numbers in this particular period of the Cambrian. So we can learn a lot about different things that were tried out, experimented with, and played around with by these arthropods, and what that leads us to today in terms of creatures in the arthropod family, insects, bugs, you name it, and also what we can look at about the evolution of the concept of brains in general. Now, when you think about tiny, tiny fossils, 1.5 centimetres in length, it can be easy to overlook them and think there's nothing new to learn there. But what these researchers did by analysing these tiny fossils, hunting and finding preserved brains and nervous systems, is really turn on its head the development of not only just heads, and also the concept of how brains were formed at the time, and how they can build a common plan that was formed then and carries forward through to today great paper published in the journal Science by lead authors in the along with a listener collaborator. Mm-hmm. I think about brains and how they convey information about our world process it, and turn that into thoughts and actions. There's a lot going on that really humans don't quite fully comprehend or understand, even with the managers of modern medicine and lots of science investigating this particular topic. If you think about something really just simple, a sense, a single sense, and think about how your brain gets that signal and then processes it, there's still so much we don't know. Now, imagining touch, the basic concept that if you reach out and touch something, yeah. most people will have this sensation in all parts of their bodies, some more, some less, depending on how well their nerves are functioning in those regions. But how that touch signal gets back to your brain, and what the brain does with it, is not really fully understood. Because how that signal gets to your brain, and what the brain does to that, or how it gets, what happens to that signal along the way is way more complicated than it may appear. And that's what researchers have recently published in the journal Cell and the journal Nature from Harvard Medical School. Now, the researchers involved in this paper include David Ginty, the professor of neurobiology, along with including Schuller, Le Lenet and many other collaborators on both of these particular papers. Now, it's pretty clear that the signals from your fingers, for example, have to pass through up to your brain, which means they'll probably travel through the central nervous system and up through the spinal cord brain stem into your brain itself. Now, how and what happens to those signals is what these researchers were diving into, because what they found is that the spinal cord and the brainstem aren't just basic relay centers that transmit and translate the information to the brain. They're actually actively involved in processing those touch signals. And as they travel into the higher order of the brain signal regions, the brain stem and the spinal cord are actually involved in helping change that signal and make it more palatable for the brain to process, which is not just acting as a dumb relay, it's actually acting as part of that evaluation loop. Now, in the two papers we're going to look at here, one in the journal Cell, the other in the journal Nature. The paper in the journal Cell focuses on specialised neurons that you can find in the spinal cord. And these do a really important job. They make a complex network that can process even the lightness of touch, like the brushing of a hand against something incredibly soft. This type of sight movement, well, they're specialised cells, neurons, in your spinal cord that are designed to process and detect that exact signal and pass that along into the brainstem. That's crazy to think about. There are cells inside your spinal cord that are designed to detect the faintest of touches. That's a really important thing because it shows that your brain is outsourcing some of responsibility for processing these signals closer to the source of generation, not trying to rely on just doing it in the brain itself. Now, in the other paper that one published in the journal Nature they established that there is a direct and indirect touch pathways that work together, converging not in the spinal cord, but in the brain stem. And these are processed in a particularly astonishing way as well, because they really show that both the spinal cord has dedicated jobs and cells in order to facilitate that, along with the brain stem, to actually process, handle, and triage this information coming through and prepare it exactly for the brain to make a good decision with. Now, what they were focusing on in these particular studies obviously involved most trials in mice because mechanisms for touch are largely well-stable and conserved across species. So what happens in humans for touch processing is pretty similar to a mice model. So that's really helpful for both analysing this particular study in question, but also for how we can study pain management, for example. Now, originally, most researchers would have gone that touch is something that is related to sensory neurons in the skin that encounter a touch stimulus, such as pressure or vibration. They get this electrical impulse so that they send that pulse all the way through from the skin down to the brain stem through the nervous system. There are other neurons along the way that relay this touch information to the brain's primary somatosensory cortex, the highest level of the brain in the touch hierarchy perspective. And that's where the brain processes the signal. At least that was the concept that's held for many years. But Ginti and the team wondered if the spinal cord and the brainstem could be somehow involved given their presence of all these strange cells in the loop. And since these areas are kind of like the lowest levels of the touch hierarchy, they would probably form a more indirect touch pathway or signal pathway into the brain. Look, it's not actually that surprising to think about it this way because if you think about it, touch is just another sense. And if you compare, say, a different sense like vision, A lot of the time researchers focused on the visual cortex, the region in your brain that processes the signals. But then they realized that there were other things happening outside of the visual cortex. the retina, for example, which receives a bunch of information and processes it well before it reaches the cortex. And the retina is heavily involved in processing the information before it actually gets to the cortex itself, visual cortex, that is. So if you look at, say, the way vision is handled by the brain, pushing out responsibility to distributive parts of your body, It makes sense that touch would do it, but where and how, having that be in the spinal cord and the brain stem is where the researchers really made that leap to actually find proof specialized cells that do that work. Now, of course, it is understood that like the dorsal horn neurons in superficial layers of the spinal cord, these can be mostly used to transmit temperature and pain stimulation. But that's not the same as like a really light touch. And a light touch is like such a specialized type of sensation that is less obvious to feel the need for a body to process, like pain or temperature, absolutely essential for survival. Whereas, you know, light touch is less so. So it's pretty amazing that your body has developed the specialized places to process this and put them in a really important place, like the spinal cord and brain stem as well and it just goes to show that the way in which our bodies have evolved have evolved for efficient processing of all kinds of signals and that means not just doing it in one spot but by getting help from others in this case from the brain stem and from the spinal cord which are contributing not just passing along information up to the brain so your spine is really important and does a lot of things not just keeping you upright or keeping you giving you information about temperature or pain well it actually gives you all kinds of touch sensations and not just acting as a highway but also an active participant in processing even the lightest of touches and signals from your body this research was published in two papers one in the journal cell one in the journal nature this has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From processing the signals of the lightest of touches in your spinal cord and passing along to the brain, to the way in which segmented body plans and bodies and brains developed into the earliest art. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Anatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.